the Medical School HQ Podcast, Session 27. Hello and welcome back. I'm Ryan Gray, your host as always, back for another session of the Medical School HQ Podcast, the podcast about medical school where we take you through the pre-med process, medical school, and even through residency. We're here to take your knowledge of becoming a physician to the next level. Today I want to tell you about our guest, and I will do that in one second. Before we get to that, we had one five-star rating and review left by Ryan Carver. Thank you, Ryan. He said it's a great podcast. Uh, he's a non-traditional student, so that's a perfect segue into our guest which I'll let you know in a second. Uh, If you want to leave a five-star rating or review, you can do so in iTunes, medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. Doing so helps us tremendously, and we are very grateful for everybody that takes a couple of minutes to do that. Today, our guest is Liza Thompson. She is a former director of the postback programs at both Goucher and Johns Hopkins. And she had or has about 20 years of experience in, in running those programs. And so I would call her an expert in the non-traditional student and in postback programs. And I wanted to bring her on to talk about everything about postbacks and the non-traditional student. I know we've covered non-traditional students here in the past. I've interviewed some of those students. If you remember, back in session six, we talked to Russell, who's a non-traditional student. Session eight, we talked to Torre, who's a non-traditional student. And even session 11, we talked to a, a very non-traditional student, Kate, who at the time of talking to her, she was 56 years old and a third-year medical student. So if you're a non-traditional student, I highly recommend you go back and listen to those episodes as well as uh, listening to everything that Liza has to say here. To start off, I asked her to explain some of her background and, and why I can call her an expert. I started working with pre-med students 20 years ago uh, when I was hired to work at the post-bac pre-med program at Goucher College and have worked uh, with non-traditional students for the past 20 years. Uh, for 16 years at Goucher, uh, I, was, I started there as the assistant director of the post-bac program and after a few years became the director of the program and was um, there for a long time and then uh, eventually went to Johns Hopkins, where I also directed their post-bac program. And so for the bulk of my career, really almost all of those years, um, you know, I worked with post-baccalaureate pre-medical students, career changers. So typically, you know, students had been out of college for a number of years. Uh, when I first started, actually, uh, in pre-med advising for post-bac students, more of the students were actually older and they were the typical career changers uh, back in 1993. And then over the years, that shifted somewhat. 
so that now, uh, you know, I would say in the last seven to 10 years, the applicant pool to postback programs has shifted younger. So now, in fact, uh, you know, when I was at, um, at Goucher and Hopkins, uh, I saw a shift to where people were actually entering college planning to do a postback program. It was a whole different mindset. You know, I would get occasional calls from high school students who were, uh, you know, who wanted to know about the prospect of a postback program after college, which just was not the norm. Um, so, and I think it's just because the idea of a postback program has gained traction. They've proliferated all over the country, so it's, it's sort of a common thing now. Well, let's, let me but, let me stop you there for a second. Sure, you're, you're throwing out a lot of terms that some people that aren't familiar with a, a non-traditional medical student, they might not know these terms. And I, I ran across this recently with a, a family member. My my sister-in-law is graduating from college uh, this coming weekend as we're recording this mm-hmm. from a small liberal arts school with a psychology degree. Yeah. And halfway through her senior year, she's like, well, or a little bit before that, she she shadowed a psychiatrist. She's like, well, maybe I want to go to medical school. And so me doing what I'm doing here, I'm like, hey, you can go to a post-bac program. Right. But she had no clue what what a post-bac program was, and neither did uh, my in-laws. And so okay. we had to explain to them what a post-bac program is. So explain to listeners that might not know exactly what is a post-bac program. Okay, sure. I yeah, and I, I, you're right. I just, um, <laughs> I'm so involved in all of this that I sort of take it for granted that that um, people sometimes will know exactly what I'm talking about. So I'm glad you you interjected and in and are uh, asking me to explain some of these terms. So, um, and by the way, your uh, sister-in-law's story is very familiar to me, especially amongst psychology majors, actually. So, postback programs are designed for people who either late in their college career decide that they want to go to medical school for you know a variety of reasons they may have experience in a particular discipline like psychology for example where they've had some involvement with patients um, through either coursework or a component of a course that involves clinical work they start thinking, well, maybe psychology isn't going to be quite enough for me. They decide they want more, and, they, and maybe they want more science than they're able to get in psychology. So they have this aha moment, and then they need to go to medical school, but they don't have the coursework that they need. So post programs, and specifically so-called formal post programs, offer these students a way to get the courses that they need very quickly, usually a year. Sometimes more than that, it depends on the program. And um, some of these programs have uh, what are called linkage agreements with various medical schools. So these students can fast track it to medical school, skip what's known as the glide year. That's the year after they complete medical school when they're usually applying to, to uh, after they complete the postback program when they're usually applying to med school. So those are the, um, the, formal post-bac programs. There, you know, there are other ways to get the post-bac coursework. You can do it on your own, um, or you can do it uh, through various uh, extension schools, continuing education divisions. Okay. So there are, there are different ways you can do it, but just 
In terms of the post-bac pre-med program, it's for people who uh, were not pre-med in college and then decide they want to do it. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about the different options for a post-bac program in a little bit. But well, you just mentioned that the, the typical post-bac student in your mind is somebody who is what you mentioned earlier, a, a career changer, somebody that really didn't know they wanted to be a physician earlier on in their undergraduate career or even earlier in their life. Maybe they're somebody a little bit older. Mm-hmm. There are... There are and there there is another subset of students though, correct? Somebody that w- knew they wanted to be pre-med but uh stumbled a little bit through undergrad and and needs some more courses to build up their resume so to speak. Mhm. Right? That's correct. That's right. But those are not non-traditional students. Those are post-bac students who go to a record enhancing post-bac program. But they're not non-traditional. Okay. Typically. Okay. But there is just just for the listeners, there's a different a differentiation between a record enhancing postback program and a career changer postback program. That's right. That's right. So, you know, if we're focusing on non-traditional students today, the non-traditional student is the one who would go to a career changing postback program because the student who goes to a record-enhancing program, they chose to be pre-med as undergraduates. So, you know, they're more in the traditional mold of the typical medical school applicant who might apply right after college or uh, during their junior year, after their junior year of college and go right to medical school. That's, a, you know, or majored in a science. So that's the, that's the traditional medical school applicant. Okay. So let's talk about the the non-traditional student, somebody that you would consider a a quote-unquote career changer. With your time at at Goucher and Johns Hopkins, what were you seeing as far as the the types of applicants? Who who were they in your eyes? Can can you stereotype a non-traditional applicant? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, there were many different kinds of applicants. And by that, I mean, they came from many different fields um, and many different undergraduate disciplines. In, in other words, I would see applicants who majored in art history, English, psychology, economics, um, history, religion, any number of fields. Uh, you know, the one thing that unified them is that they were by and large not science majors. Occasionally, I would have an application from an engineer who didn't do all the pre-med coursework, but that was rare. Most, mostly they were humanities majors, and the, so that was the one thing that unified them. Um, you know, they were a variety of ages. Some of them were really true career changers who, you know, been in a, a previous career for 10 or more years, and through some kind of experience. It could be experiencing a a family member's illness and even death or uh, the illness of a friend. I'm thinking of a particular former student who had, you know, had a very successful career previous to deciding to go into medical, into medicine. And she actually helped one of her 
closest friends through a, a very serious illness and actually her friend died and she it, you know it, it caused her to start thinking about her priorities in life and and how she might be able to find more meaning in her life and she decided to go to medical school and so she applied to post back programs and and went through all the coursework and then went to medical school and so um, you know, typically for the people who are true career changers, they do have some kind of crystallizing experience or they witness uh, a world event such as 9-11. In fact, after that happened, um, there was an influx of post program applicants in the years following that because people were really affected by that. And they really, it, it helped them examine what they were doing. And they uh, were very inspired by the first responders to that event and felt that they wanted to take action. And so, you know, it was an interesting time uh, for post-bac programs and, and what we saw during that, during the aftermath of that. Okay. But in terms of, let me just give a little bit more yeah. information about non-traditional students and you know, there are usually three things that qualify them as non-traditional. And, you know, they're usually older, I would say. And older doesn't have to mean 35 or older than that. You know, it can be just a, a few years out of college. But um, they're typically, you know, older than the typical med school applicant. Typically non-science majors for the most part. And, um and some of them have had prior careers. Some of them are, you know, not that far out of undergraduate, but, uh, you know, maybe it takes them just two or three years to figure out this is what they want to do. So, those, you know, I, I would say those are three things that uh, that are traits of, of them. As a former admissions person as, and director of post-bac programs, when you see a non-traditional student, a non-traditional applicant come in, in your eyes, do you see a difference between a successful professional who had that aha moment that you were just talking about mm-hmm. and, and now wants to veer into medicine versus somebody who hasn't been successful in life, is just kind of stumbling from one job to the other and and goes, well, I was kind of interested in medicine back when I was in high school. Maybe I'll, I'll try my luck at it and see what happens. Is, is it, do you see a difference in those kind of applicants? Well, yes. And I would say that I've seen both. And medical schools view them differently, too. So generally speaking, I would say that the individuals who have been successful in what they've done before and have been driven in their dedication to the prior career and are leaving it from a position of strength are viewed very favorably by post-bac programs and by medical schools. Now, um, it, it can also be true that the, the people who dabble in a few different things trying to find direction, trying to find, um, you know, the correct path for them. They can be just as successful. I would say that for those people, they need to, just as in the, the true career changers, I mean, what unifies both of those groups is that they, they each have to get experience in medicine, 
you know, to, to actually prove to themselves that not only are they well suited to the profession, but they like it, you know, they're comfortable with patients, um, and that they are dedicated to it. I mean, what really should happen is that they get the experience and they're just really inspired to do this. And that's what actually motivates them to take the steps to apply to post-bac programs. And actually it, it helps them, you know, that motivation helps them get through really difficult coursework. Post-bac programs are not easy. Uh, you know, it's a, a year of very intensive coursework. You have to be really, really dedicated to it. And the clinical work, is really inspiring. And, you know, one of the things that I um, encouraged my post-bac students to do in both the programs I, I directed was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty serious clinical work. And it was not just because it was something that they thought they needed for medical school, but it really kept them engaged with why they were doing this in the first place. And, you know, they're sitting in physics lecture and, organic chemistry and biology and you can get pretty bogged down in the details and getting off campus you know once or twice a week to do some clinical work really really helps students stay engaged with with their focus and it, it's it's just a wonderful thing to do okay I, I i agree i think it's having having not only an end game in sight because you know what the end game is by by being around and volunteering and shadowing cool. and doing those having those experiences but also having that that higher purpose and, and okay. knowing why you're sitting there helps so a non-traditional student will will kind of from here on forward we'll we'll stick to the a non-traditional successful person who has that aha moment they're in in finance, let's say, okay. and they go, okay, I want to, I want to be a doctor. Isn't it a little weird for a thirty some old, thirty some odd year old person to call up a doctor's office and say, "Hey, I'm a I'm a banker, but now I want to come hang out with you and and see patients with you." How do, how does how does a non traditional student start that path into getting the experience they need? That's a great question, and I've counseled many, many, many former investment bankers and uh, other people who worked in finance, and um, in fact, I'm thinking of one particular student. It might be helpful to give I examples for your listeners so they can envision someone who actually went through this process. So I'm thinking of one particular student who was working at a, one of the big banks in New York and she was traveling with people from the bank to uh, assess whether they were going to invest money in a hospital actually. And she had traveled to this uh, hospital to meet with executives there and get information about the financial structure of the hospital and that sort of thing. So they could make a, a decision. And um, she, she, was driving away from the hospital, and it, it occurred to her she didn't want to be making these financial uh, decisions. She actually wanted to be doing what the doctors in the hospital were doing. And it really made her start thinking about what she was doing as a banker and you know how she could get more information to help her make this decision. And so she went back to New York, and she decided that 
she wanted to start volunteering in a hospital and really get inside of a hospital and work with doctors and see what they did and talk to them about their decision to go into medicine. And so she contacted um, several area hospitals in New York and figured out you know, where would be the best place for her to work. And as you know, hospitals are open around the clock. And so, you know, she could work it out so that she could volunteer in the ER when she could do it because it's very common that banking jobs require long hours too. So, you know, for people who want to get experience, you have to find a place that that's going to give you some um, option to work maybe out of normal business hours so you can work at night and overnight and that sort of thing. So she worked there, you know, for, for a while, uh, volunteered there. And, you know, she got information that she needed to make her decision. She decided it was definitely what she wanted to do. And then she applied to post-bac programs and, um, she, uh, you know, she's now in medical school and I've seen stories like that over and over and over again. And so, you know, to answer your question directly, what these people need to do is contact their local hospital volunteer office. That's typically the way that things get started. Uh, you know, a big hospital usually has more flexibility and more uh, after business hour opportunities than a small clinic, for example, which is typically open, you know, nine to five, eight to six, something like that. So, uh, you know, that's the place to start. And get your feet wet and see, you know, if, if it, you're well suited to it and if it's something you really like to do. And, um, you know, that, that's something that, you know, the med schools are going to want to see that too. And, um, you know, without that experience, you just, just really can't know. I remember year, this is years and years and years ago. Um, you know, we had this very, very talented applicant. He actually, um, was at the top of his class in college and had, you know, really sky high test scores and that sort of thing. And he, he was very passionate in his personal statement about his, his interest in medicine. And, you know, we decided to take, take him on and take a risk. And he didn't have medical experience and, uh, you know, he was in, did very well in the program and started volunteering in a hospital and he just didn't like it. So, you know, you just, you really need the experience to know whether it's something you're going to like to do or not. Yeah. So that, that's the volunteering and shadowing aspect. How do you get that? Mm -hmm. But there's, there's so much more than that. And even pre-med students who are in the middle of their undergraduate, uh, undergraduate coursework, there's, there's confusion among them about what they need as far as courses and, Mm -hmm. and and tests they need to take and and how to apply how is how is somebody that's been out of school for several years supposed to get that kind of information what where would you recommend they go to get that kind of pre-med advising well there are several things they can do if they it depends on whether they are going to be enrolled in a formal postback program or a, you know an informal postback program or a do it yourself postback program. Where do they get the, where do they get that initial information about the types so of postbacks? The first thing they should do, the very first thing they should do is contact the pre-med advisor at their undergraduate institution. So even if they've graduated, let's say you've been out of school 10 years even. Uh they should first contact the pre-med advising office at their undergraduate institution. 
some uh, schools have policies um, as to alumni and the extent to which they'll offer advising to those individuals. But that's the first place to start because they will tell you whether you can use the, the advising office, um, you know, what uh, services are available to alumni. They can give um, alumni information about various postback programs. They can connect students with other graduates who've gone to postback programs so they can get firsthand information about their experiences there. Um, so that's really the first place to start. Um, you know, in terms of specific information about career changer postback programs or record enhancing postback programs, the Association of American Medical Colleges maintains a database of programs. And so if you want, uh, you know, hard information on different programs in terms of the number of students they enroll, the cost, that sort of thing, it's all on the website for the AAMC. Yeah, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes, which the listeners can can find at medicalschoolhq.net slash session 27. You go there, I'll have a link to everything we talk about. So we we kind of mentioned earlier the different types of postback programs, not, not just for career changers and uh, record enhancers, mm-hmm. but a, a do-it-yourself postback program and a formal postback program. Why don't you explain some of those differences? Sure. Let me start with um, the formal programs. So those are programs which are structured, and um, by that I mean it's a very structured curriculum. You get everything you need to, you know, to be able to apply to medical school. Um, I'm going to just put a little bit of a, a caveat here in that with the 2015 MCAT coming up, uh, there may be some changes in the formal postback programs because of the new content that's going to be on the MCAT. So anyone who's thinking about applying to a postback program, this upcoming year actually for enrollment in 2015 should make sure to check with any postback program they're thinking of enrolling in what their plan is for curriculum changes in 2014-15. So I just want to put that out there because this is a big, big thing that's affecting postback programs. Um, so the the formal programs, you know, you get everything usually in, in a year, uh, can be more depending on the program. Uh, advising is a component of the program. Uh, MCAT prep is usually included in the program. Uh, you know, as I said a few minutes ago, many of these formal programs have linkages with medical schools. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a very convenient and tried and true way to get to medical school pretty quickly. The do-it-yourself post-bac programs are often much cheaper than the formal programs. Formal programs can be pricey. I mean, they can be very, very expensive. The do-it-yourself postback program is one in which a student would, for instance, go to their local state university or wherever, you know, whatever university is closest to them and take the courses on their own. Um, or they may do it, I'm thinking of a program um, through the University of Maryland called Science in the Evening. You know, it's a, it's a low-cost way to get the uh, prerequisites that you need. Um, you know there are some some challenges to doing it that way for students in that 
you can often be low on the totem pole in terms of getting your classes. So anyone who wants to do it, do it yourself or should find out whether they'll be able to get the classes that they need, how long it might take them to do so. I mean, it might take several years for them to be able to fit everything in because enrollments might fill up with degree-seeking students first, uh, and then, uh, then it opens up to so-called special students. Uh, people who want to go the do-it-yourself route should also figure out what kind of advising they might get at the university, if any. Now, sometimes they're not uh, able to get the advising that they need if they go the do-it-yourself route. Or they, can, they might be able to take classes independently, you know, on their own, but use their undergrad pre-med advising office as a possibility. So that might be one way that they could patch it together and uh, do it relatively cheaply and, uh, you know, get to medical school. Um, I also want to put out there that there are um, programs, and usually these are the formal programs that give certificates. They're certificate granting programs. So once you finish your coursework at one of these programs, you get a certificate. Um, but really, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really mean that much. You know, it doesn't really matter whether you get a certificate or not. It, it really doesn't. So I don't want prospective post-bac students to get hung up on that, you know, that terminology because it doesn't really make that much of a difference. You know, the, for instance, the medical schools don't care if you went to a certificate granting program or not. Yeah, and, and, and I'll kind of generalize and see if you'll agree with me or not. The... The goal of a post-bac program is to do two things. It's to challenge you in the sciences to, to, number one, make sure you can handle medical school coursework, and number two, get the prerequisites in that you need. And, and number two, and I think is probably the bigger goal, is to prepare you for the MCAT so you can rock it. Yes, I would say both of those things. And, you you know, I want to bring up another point that um, that comes up based on the first thing you said, which is that uh, you need to get your science classes and you're thereby proving to the med schools that you can handle a heavy load of courses. So, you know, one thing I want to throw out there for your listeners to consider is that when you go to an intensive one-year program where you're doing everything, you're definitely proving to the med schools that you can handle it. Um, for people who, you know, for financial reasons or otherwise, need to spread out the coursework over a number of years, um, and, you know, that's totally understandable. People have financial constraints. They have family constraints. They have jobs. You know, not everyone can do the one-year intensive post-bac program. Um, but, you know, one thing thing to consider is that if you spread everything out over a number of years, you might not be proving to the med schools with as much, you know, of an impact that you can handle a heavy load of classes. I mean, yes, in truth, you are juggling a lot if you have a job and you're taking two classes and you have a family and all of that sort of thing. So you are proving it in a different way, but um, it is true that the, the, you know, the intensive formal programs it's like science boot camp. It's really hard. It's really, really hard. And yes, um, you're you're also preparing for the MCAT, uh, and because the MCAT, you know, as you know, it's a test of content and strategy. So you got to get the content down to be able to do well in it. And yes, those classes are giving you that content too. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm glad you made a point about the 
taking an intense course versus kind of spreading it out that it is looked at a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And then also when you spread it out, the material that you learned that's right. two or three years ago, you might not remember for the MCAT when you start preparing for that. So you get a little stale. There, there are lots of things to consider when you're trying to plan all this and, and when to pull the trigger and, and how to pull the trigger and what path to go down. Yeah, but to be fair, remember, undergrad students do that too. You know, mm-hmm. they spread it out over several years. They still do well on the MCAT. So don't want to worry your listeners. You know, they can spread it out and they can still do well on the MCAT. Yeah, they can. Uh, Okay, so let's jump into a a non-traditional student or or a non-traditional applicant who is applying to Johns Hopkins where where you were. What are you looking for? What what should a non-traditional applicant be thinking about when they're applying to to best show off their abilities to to get into the the postback program and then and then show that later on they'll be successful in in medical school. Well, there are several things that postback programs look for in applicants, and they're as you would imagine, very very similar to what medical schools look for. So, academic excellence. So you know we want to see uh, a strong academic record at the undergraduate level. It doesn't have to be perfect, but uh, you know, and there can be bumps along the way, but past academic success generally predicts future academic success. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the things that I always kept in mind when weighing applications uh, was that it wouldn't have been fair to applicants to have admitted people who couldn't handle the coursework, you know, take their money know that they would ha- may have maybe may struggle through the classes and um you know sometimes a particular environment may not suit a particular person so you know one of my jobs when i was uh directing these various programs was to try to ascertain whether a particular applicant would be a good fit for that environment you know and it maybe they would have been a great fit in another environment but just generally speaking academic strength was something that, you know, we were looking for. And then, um, passion, you know, we, we love to see passion and it can be dedication to a particular, uh, extracurricular experience at the college level or for someone who is, uh, applying as a true career changer, a non-traditional applicant could be I'm thinking of, you know, a brilliant architect, for example, someone who is really creative and shows shows that through the application um, and for, you know, a particular reason decides to switch and go into medicine. Um, could be that that person was actually designing hospitals or something, something like that. Um, so, you know, passion for what they were doing before. And it, I want to emphasize that it does not have to be related to medicine. You know, that's one of the things that makes these applicants so interesting, not only to post-bac programs, but to medical schools. Um, so, uh, you know, passion and dedication. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that we always look for, even if they didn't have a whole lot of experience in medicine, was a pretty strong history of community service. You know, we wanted to see people who were 
dedicated to helping others. Um, they could have worked in soup kitchens. They could have worked in homeless shelters. Um, you know, lots of different ways they could have gotten involved in their community. And so we were pretty, pretty focused on that as um, an indication of an applicant's dedication to, to helping other people. And then, you know, obviously one thing we really wanted to see was medical experience. You know, we really wanted to see that people had tested their interest, um, knew something about what they were getting into, um, had, had, uh, worked with patients, talked to doctors, uh, had a basic understanding of healthcare system, and, uh, you know, we're really, really primed to do this. And you could tell, I mean, we, uh, I always, um, one of the components of a postback, of the postback application process is an interview. And, uh, you know, during the interview, uh, you'd have the opportunity to really, really sense whether the applicant was, whether they were just hungry for this or not. And that's really what you need to get through the courses and to, to really, uh, excel. Okay. So a, a lot of great kind of personality traits in an applicant and experience that probably should be obtained to, to know that a, a lifetime of service is for them. And that's what being a physician is. It's, it's service. Yeah. Yes. And so a, a student is, in a postback program, whether it's formal, do it yourself. What what types of advice do you have for a non traditional student when they're applying to medical school to maybe explain that that gap in education where they they had another career and and is there is there a way to kind of highlight the fact that they are a non traditional student? Is that something that you want to highlight? Yes, it's definitely something you want to highlight. I mean, it depends on the individual person and what exactly they did before they decided to go to medical school, how long they were involved in it. But just remember this, you know, the, whatever the applicant did before sets them apart in the medical school application process. And, you know, depending on what it is, I always encouraged um, my students to Try to think about the skills that they learn from whatever that prior career was and whatever skills they learn that will transfer to a career in medicine. And there were, there were definitely overlaps. Uh, and there were some things that they learned from that prior career that were incredibly helpful in medicine. And, um, and you know, the, one of the chief challenges for true non-traditional students, people who've been out for a while, career changers, is pulling everything together in that personal statement because for a, a, an applicant who has been out a number of years and has a lot of different experiences, it's a real challenge to try to tie everything together, to uh, address everything comprehensively. And sometimes you cannot address everything. There's just too much there. And so applicants have to choose maybe a thematic way to write the personal statement, um, you know, choose something that runs through all of their experiences, one common trait or one particular, um, particular, uh, either character trait or, uh, you know, it could be the theme of helping others. You know, maybe they did all these different things, but maybe 
that's what ties everything together. And so that's one way to tie, tie it all up uh, in the personal statement. But in terms of, you know, the overall advice, it would be to highlight that difference and, uh, you know, don't run away from it. I mean, it is one of the things that makes that individual what they are. And, uh, you know, helping the medical schools understand that on a very, in a very fundamental way is really, really important. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good answer, I think. You need to highlight it. And what applicants need to understand is that as an admissions committee member, the, the admissions committee doesn't want 100 of the exact same student in their class yeah. because that, that makes for a mess. Not at all. That uh, is what they want. They, they want, they want uh, top to bottom. They, they obviously want stellar students, so the good mm-hmm. grades and great MCAT scores are what they're looking for, but they're looking for diversity. They, they're looking to build a little mini community of mm-hmm. students that are going to be hanging out together for four years. And there's going to be a lot of kumbaya. And, That's and, right. That's and, right. And getting 100 of the same personality that have the same experiences doesn't make for that. So you, you have to understand that being different is OK. It's OK. It's good. It's good. And, uh, you know, I always found that um, post back students had wonderful experiences out on the interview trail when it came to medical school applications because the people doing the interviews just had such a good time talking to them because they weren't just talking about their undergraduate science research. You know, they had other experiences that were just really interesting for them to to discuss. And so that was always a really uh, positive component of the medical school application process for them. Outstanding. Well, Liza, where can uh, our community find you online? Uh, well, you can find me um, through my website. I now offer guidance to medical school applicants through my company, Thompson Advising, and to both medical school applicants and post-bac program applicants. Um, I, um, through you know, having worked with non-traditional students for 20 years, I do have a lot of expertise um, that I offer them, but, um, you know, I advise anyone who's applying to medical school. So they can find me there, uh, and uh, it's just thompsonadvising.com. All right, folks, that was Liza Thompson. Again, you can find her at thompsonadvising.com. If you uh, do anything with her, let her know you found her through the medical school headquarters and listening to her here on the podcast. If you have any questions for us, if you have any questions for Liza and you want to leave them on our website, you can do so at the show notes in the comments section. To get to the show notes, as always, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash session 27. A couple of other ways to interact with us, you can go to Twitter. If you're on Twitter, we're at medicalschoolhq. You can go to medicalschoolhq.net slash feedback and you'll have a couple different options of getting a hold of us there. So, as always, I hope you found this information very valuable. I hope you're able to do something with it, get the confidence that you need if you are a non-traditional student thinking about uh, thinking about becoming a non-traditional student. I hope this gives you some confidence to know that you're not the only one out there that people do this every day. They they jump ship and and change careers and that as long as you have 
the information that you need, you can do it and and be successful at it and, and do what you want. So as always, I hope you join us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters. 